Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. Go ahead, if you would, and turn to Revelation chapter 16. And if you were here last week, you know our lesson last week kind of served as an intro for tonight's lesson. And in tonight's lesson, we're going to see... God's final wrath uh, poured out in these last seven bowl judgments. Last week, we know as we looked at the intro, it said it's, it's his final judgment. And, and we saw that he was pointing us toward finally, finally the end of the wrath that, again, we have seen since chapter 6 as it's gradually been poured out and poured out and poured out. And I told you that these seven bowl judgments are going to come rapidly. They're going to come one right after the other, through these plagues that we are going to see as they're described for us tonight in the text. I told you they're going to come one after the other, and that's why tonight we're going to look at all of them in that rapid-fire secession as they are poured out and will be poured out in the end. So we're going to walk through this tonight, and I want you to pay close attention to something. I want you to pay close attention how reprobate sinners continually ignore the judgment and the wrath of God that's being directly poured out on them. They continually ignore it. I want you to see that. That is why we pray for those who are in darkness. They just can't see. We pray that God would open their blinded eyes so that they can see. Many in our culture, we know this, act as if God is some weak or impotent God who tolerates sin. In this lesson, we're going to see that that is the farthest thing from the truth. He is patient. He is forbearing. He is merciful. But I assure you of this, he is not weak and he's not impotent. And so you see on your Outline tonight the title, So Much for the Liberal God of Tolerance. Uh, that's how many define God. He is just a God of love and of fluff, and He tolerates everything, even wickedness. We're going to see that's not the truth. When we see these seven last bowls of judgment poured out on the earth, He is the farthest thing from weak. Many look at the text that we're going to look at tonight, and they try to somehow explain it away that it's not necessarily supernatural things. These are, just, these are just events that are going to happen. These are just natural disasters. I want you to understand that's not true. We are going to see that every one of these bowls are because of the sovereignty of God even in His wrath. He is going to do this. And he is to be praised and glorified for what he does. So we're going to read together the entirety of chapter 16. And then we're going to come back and we're going to break it down. But it says in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Whose wrath? God's. He goes on, he says, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And everything, every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. And they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify Him. 
The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their swords. But they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. We'll talk about this in a moment. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragons, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, verse 15 says, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has, like, like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city, referencing Jerusalem, split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Of course, we know that's referencing the restored Roman Empire under the Antichrist. Verse 20 says, Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. We're going to be looking at a few things tonight. The first thing that I want you to see is in the first verse, the exclamation of God's wrath. It says, then. We know that word is very important when we look at Revelation because that lets us know it's something that comes next. Then. What I just saw, John is saying what I just saw has passed, and then something is going to take place. Now we're going to see, as I told you, when we get to these bold judgments, we're going to see them Bam, 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 one right after the other. He's letting us know there's a transition here. Then, a transition from what we saw last week when we saw the prelude to this. He says, then, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels. I heard a loud voice, and this voice said, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. We won't spend a lot of time on this point, but I want you to understand the significance of this The voice that was coming from the temple was none other than the voice of God. God the Father's voice saying, it is time. We saw last week that the final wrath was coming. It's here. He's instructing the angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. He unleashes them all at the same time. This voice coming from the temple, indicating for us, the dwelling of God. We, we have talked about this over and over in our study in Revelation and other studies, how the things that we saw in the tabernacle and then in the temple on this earth in the Old Testament pointed to, according to the author of Hebrews and what he documented for us in the epistle of Hebrews, we see this, that they pointed to the things in heaven. So in heaven there is that literal temple, and from that temple, that dwelling place of God Almighty, this loud voice comes forth, signifying the appointed time of God's final wrath. Not only signifying the appointed time of God's final wrath, and did you know this? It's been appointed since before the foundations of the earth. In eternity past, before the earth was ever created, within the triune Godhead, in the aseity of God, all alone, it was already decided when this would happen. And this loud voice is declaring It is happening now. This is the appointed time of God's final wrath. Why is it important that we see it's an appointed time? Because you're not going to get through the history of this earth without God's sovereign time clock at each tick going exactly where he has designed it to go. Man is not going to escape the judgment of God. It is appointed 
unto man wants to die. We know this. And after this, there is a judgment. We are seeing judgment before that final judgment come upon wicked man in the earth. They cannot escape the judgment of God because the only salvation we have from the judgment of God is in Christ Jesus. And we see this. These who are here on the earth at this time are not in Christ Jesus. He is signifying for us the appointed time. It is now. We can't outrun it. That's why we pray for the lost. That's why we pray for those who are unrepentant, those who are unredeemed. It is signaling the angels' call to action. I want you to see God's sovereign hand in that. The angels are not acting on their own. It's not like there's some rogue angels. We've seen those before who fell with Satan, the leader of the rogue angels. But we see this. These are not rogue angels acting of their own accord. These are holy angels acting under the sovereign instruction of Almighty God. He says, now is the time. Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. So it's signifying the appointed time of God's final wrath, that sovereign point in time. It is signaling the angel's call to action, but it's also showing, watch this, and I want you to write this down because many people are confused about this. It is showing the anger of God toward unbelieving sinners. Now I know that causes some of you to gasp. God angry? Yes, I assure you, God is angry with the unbelieving sinner. I once was an enemy of God because of my sin. Many people mistakenly think that the whole world is just born as children of God. That is not true. You were born from the lineage of Adam. You were born a child of sin. You were born a child of Satan. And it's not until Christ rescues you that you are a child of God. And I assure you of this. God's position toward you in an unredeemed state, though He loves, He is also indignant toward the sinner. Please understand that. He is indignant toward the sinner. He is indignant toward sin. Sin is the thing that caused that interruption and that fellowship and that intimacy that he once had with man that sin interrupted. So we see here when he makes this loud exclamation, it's showing his anger, his indignation toward the unbelieving, unrepentant sinner. And let's just ask this question. How many times just in the revelation have we seen opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent? Yet they still have not repented. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 15 says this. See, the Lord is coming with fire. We talked about this last week that the fire of God is going to come upon the earth. That is a picture of His wrath and indignation. The Lord is coming with fire and His chariots are like a whirlwind and He will bring down with His, watch this, anger. Anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men and many will be those slain by the Lord. He is angry with unrepentant sin and unbelief. I assure you of that. And he does not have to apologize for that because his indignation is perfectly righteous. The psalmist said this as he Penned Psalm 90, verse 11. Who knows the power of your anger? Well, this is an aspect that we oftentimes ignore in Scripture in reference to God. The anger of God? Do you mean to tell me, Kirk, that, that God is angry? Yes, and He's perfectly holy and just in His anger, as we're going to see. But doesn't He have a right to be angry? Oh, I assure you of this. He has every right in the world to be angry with me. I often scratch my head and wonder, Lord, why did you not just kill me and give me what I deserve. Yet your grace rescued me and has placed me in a position where you are no longer angry. And what is that position? It is the position of being in Christ. His imputed righteousness is now seen by the Father in and on and through my life. It's about Christ and being in Him. And I assure you of this. And no one wants to entertain this. No one definitely wants to preach it these days. If you are not in Christ, God is angry and righteously so, toward your unbelieving state and toward your sin. Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah takes note of this again. 
Verse 9, see, the day of the Lord is coming. This is what we're seeing here poured out here in Revelation. The day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and I will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than gold of ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty. Watch this. In the day of His burning anger. Now, if you're going to be one of those people, those liberal theologians of the day who act as if God has no right to be angry, you might want to reference the Scriptures to find out if that's true or not. And I assure you of this, once you reference the Scriptures, and we're just scratching the surface here today, you will see our God of love, and He is a God of love. And our God of grace, and He is a God of grace. And our God of mercy, and He is a God of mercy. Our God of patience, and He is a God of patience. But I assure you of this, He is a just God who is a God of indignation and a God of wrath. Please do not leave that out of the equation, because when you remove that, you now believe in a non-biblical, non-scriptural God. You believe in a fairy tale that a liberal world has created for you to believe in. You no longer believe in the God of Scripture. That's why it's important that we see this exclamation of God's wrath coming from the temple. It is God Himself putting all of this in order so that you don't give anyone or anything else glory for His wrath that is about to come upon the earth. You say, could God be glorified in His wrath? You watch, He will be glorified through His wrath. Because His wrath brings his, Him as much glory as His grace and His mercy does. People ask all the time, why doesn't God just save anyone? Because He has desired to be glorified not only in His mercy and His forgiveness, but also to be seen and glorified in His wrath and His holy indignation towards wickedness and sin. He has every right to do so because He is sovereign over all. He's God and we're not. So we see the exclamation of God's word coming straight, God's wrath, excuse me, coming straight from the temple, straight from God. Then we move to the next several verses, the execution of God's wrath. This is where we are going to cover all of the seven bowls as we look at them tonight as quickly as possible, but in, in as much detail as we can. Interestingly enough, God is going to use plagues. He's going to use plagues to express His final wrath on the earth. Where have we seen this before? We have seen it many times, but one that should probably come to the forefront of our mind in the Old Testament are the plagues that he brought upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh uh, during the Exodus. And we'll see this as we look at these plagues that he's going to pour on the earth, as the angels release these bowls of wrath, we're going to see that they are very similar, even sometimes exactly identical with the plagues that he used in the Exodus. There against, again, Pharaoh and Egypt. So let's look at the first bowl, verse 2, chapter 16. It says, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Ugly and painful sores. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, he pours out this bowl of wrath, and everyone who took the mark of the beast and bowed and worshipped his image, every one of them now have these lesions upon their skin oozing, these painful sores oozing with infection and disease. Many people would say at this point in time, I know our culture where we live, that doesn't sound like the God I know. Again, let's see if it doesn't sound like the God you know. Do you know the God of the Old Testament? Uh, many would say, yes, I know him very well, but it's, he doesn't sound like what you're describing him as. Let's go back to Exodus and let's just see how he worked there. Because nobody gets upset about that because it doesn't directly affect any of you. You don't live back in that time. But let's just see if this is maybe consistent with the way that God operated throughout time. Look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 10. It says this, So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses tossed it into the air. He's taking ashes or soot, and he's tossing it into the air. And watch what happens. The wrath of God against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. 
Nobody gets upset because what they want to do in their minds, they want to say this. Well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Can I tell you this and tell you this as clearly as I can? That is utter heresy. That is heresy. If you believe that, you believe false teaching. The God of the New Testament, Jehovah, is the same as the God in the Old Testament. Don't ever forget that. In fact, he operates exactly the same here. Boils and festering sores on their skin. We go to the second thing, the second bowl, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. This time, we know that he struck the sea before. Remember, and a third of the creatures of the sea died. This time, everything. Everything in the oceans of the world are going to die in a moment when the second bowl is opened and released. The entire sea Turn to blood. Everything in the world's oceans die. Can you imagine the stench upon this earth? Can you imagine the stench? Now, we can imagine in our mind, many of us have been into a fish market or a bait store where dead sea life is there for purchase. We walk in, and the first thing we do is we gasp for air. Why? Because it smells like dead sea life. Can you imagine when every creature in the oceans of the world dies in a moment. And we know what happens after that. They're going to begin to decompose. They're going to rise to the surface of the ocean. When the tides come in, so are all the dead fish, the dead sea mammals, and all of the dead plants that live in the ocean. All of that is going to wash ashore. Can you imagine the disease that is going to come with that upon the earth in just a moment? You say, well, that's harsh. I don't like to believe in a God who would do that. Let's go back to Exodus again. Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed in the blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. It sounds as if God, who is sovereign over all things and in control of all things, is working the way that he always has. The second bowl. The entire system of the oceans and the world perish in a moment. Then it says, verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. What is he talking about here? He's talking about all of the fresh water. Remember before, when his wrath and his judgment began to come upon the earth, a portion of the water was affected, turned to wormwood. It was bitter water. It was not drinkable. Here we go. Watch this. Now, every stream, every creek, every river, every lake, the fresh water supply on the earth in a moment is destroyed. Exodus. Chapter 7, verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they, they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even the wooden buckets and stone jars. In the Exodus, guess what? Even the water that they had stored up for drinking, all fresh water was affected. It's going to happen also in the end. Just prior to Christ coming back, when these seven bowls are open in succession, boom, 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 they're open. And when these things happen, these horrendous things like the earth has never seen are going to transpire. Verses 8 and 9. Look at this, the fourth bowl. We're going to talk about part of 9 right now. We're going to come back and grab another part of it in a moment. We see in verse 8, the, the fourth bowl. Verse 8 says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. Now watch this. He's, the, the first three angels poured out their bowls on the earth. This angel actually pours his bowl out on the sun. And the sun is intensified. Many would ask, how will this happen? Supernaturally. I already told you that. God is in control of these things. Uh, science will probably try to describe all of these things away or give some kind of scientific explanation as many times even now they do. There is no explanation. 
God sovereignly allows this angel to pour his bowl upon the sun. The sun scorches the inhabitants of the earth with fire. The intense heat, the intense radiation that the sun contains is going to be released upon unbelieving, unrepentant sinners on this earth. All of the inhabitants who are wicked. God exercising His control, not only of the earth, but of the stars. We go to basic science class. We realize very quickly that the sun is a what? A star. God is in control of every single one of them. I challenge you to do this. On a clear night, you have to get away from the city. Unfortunately, you used to on a clear night here. You could see all the stars, but things have changed. Get away from the city and look up at the stars. As you see millions upon millions upon millions upon billions of stars, as far as the eye can see, star after star after star after star, and every single one of them he holds in the balance. He's in control of all of them. And he shows it here. Since the angel with the bowl of his wrath poured out on the sun, the sun is then used by God to execute his judgment upon the earth. The fifth bowl, we see in verse 10, it says the fifth angel poured out his bowl. Fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness, and men gnawed their tongues in agony. Men gnawed their tongues in agony. You see, the fifth bowl, utter darkness, falls upon the Antichrist and his kingdom. We look back at the Exodus. We see the same thing. This is not coincidence. We see a plague of darkness that falls upon Egypt. Can you imagine? No light at all. Many people are afraid of the dark. Those are called the honest people. Right? If any of you, I I don't care how big and brave and testosterone-filled you are, if you were kept in a dark room for a long period of time, you would become uncomfortable very quickly because you wouldn't know what's going on. Exodus chapter 10. We see God use this same tactic to judge wicked men. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that, that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Well, that's some intense darkness. So dark that it can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. God is doing the same here with this fifth bowl judgment. Utter darkness is going to fall upon the Antichrist and upon his kingdom. We're going to look at that in detail in the next few weeks as that kingdom is going to be crushed and it's going to fall and we're going to have a detailed account of that. We see in the fifth bowl, he does exactly what he did in Exodus chapter 10. He brings darkness upon the kingdom of Antichrist. I assure you of this. It's going to throw a wrench in the spokes of that once world power immediately. We go to the sixth bowl, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, when we look at the sixth bowl, we see some interesting things happen here. We start seeing pictures of frogs, who were demons, going upon the earth to do the bidding of sovereign God. Now, why do we draw your attention to that? Because I want you to understand, many people have an error thought that God's only in control of the good things, and that Satan is in equal control of all of the bad things, and they're just two equal forces who are fighting to and fro throughout history. Can I assure you of this? That is the farthest thing from the truth. Satan is a created being. He was created as Lucifer. He fell from the heavens. With him, a third of the heavenly host fell with him. And they are those demons that we are seeing even here 
in this passage, in verse 12 through 16, those are those demons still. They are still under the sovereign control of God. He is going to use them for His sovereign bidding. Psalm 110, verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand, and He will crush kings on the day of His wrath, and He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And how is He going to make this happen? With the sixth bowl, this is going to happen. Watch again what happened. The sixth bowl, the angel pours out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its waters are dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Who are the kings from the east? They are the Asian nations who will come from that direction. And where are they coming to? These evil spirits that look like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon. We know that the dragon, Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, we know that the beast is the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, that was that second beast that we have already been familiarized with, he is the false prophet. And out of them, these lying demonic spirits who are going to perform miraculous signs are going to be used by God without them even knowing it to draw all of the kings of the earth out to that place known as Armageddon, for that day of battle. He says in verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Isn't it interesting in verse 15, if you have a red letter edition, you see that that's in red. Right there in the middle of all this, Jesus speaks. And the terms that he's using here is describing for us a soldier who is prepared for battle. Uh, he, he's not sleeping over in the, the opposite corner of his tent uh, from his armor and from his shield and from his sword and from his helmet. No, this soldier has all that stuff and it's, it's right there at his fingertips, if not already upon him, ready to go out into battle. Jesus is giving here in the midst of all this in verse 15 a warning, encouraging people to be ready. So that this time that he's describing for us in verses 12 through 16 doesn't catch you unaware. Unfortunately, many people are not going to heed that warning. All of the kings of the earth lured in to this place called Armageddon. Now many would say, well, why would all the kings of the earth come there? What you don't understand is they don't realize that they're coming there for war. Hasn't all of the earth been united under the rule of the Antichrist? They're coming there to see the miraculous signs that the demonic forces are doing that God is sovereignly making them do so that they will come to this valley so that when we get to chapter 19, you're going to see so that they can be slain by the sword that comes from his mouth when Jesus Christ returns there to the holy city of God and then out to this battle known as Armageddon in this valley, the Jezreel Valley, the, the valley of Armageddon as we see in the Old Testament. In the sixth bowl, the angel is preparing for all of this to happen under the instruction of God. Verse 16, it says, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And it is there that the wicked and evil kingdoms of this earth will be destroyed by no other than Christ Jesus himself as he and the armies of God come back to this earth to once and for all settle that he truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't get too excited, though that is very exciting. We're going to get there in chapter 19. It's going to be hard for me to just stay here for a second. We're going to get there in just a little while. Let's look at the sixth bowl. God sovereignly bringing the nations to be judged. As for all of you guys who are freaked out right now because the balloon flew over our country, can I assure you of this one thing? God's sovereign over a Chinese balloon. He's sovereign over all the wicked nations of the earth. And you know what he's going to do? Not only... Is he sovereign over that balloon? He's sovereign over the Euphrates, and he's going to dry the Euphrates up so that it doesn't keep the armies of the east from coming here and getting what they deserve, and that is the wrath of God because of their unbelief and their wickedness. We see the sixth bowl there. Now let's look at the seventh bowl. 
I know you're shocked that we've made it all the way to the seventh bowl. I told you these bowls are going to be rapid fire. Verse 17. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. A loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. It is God saying, It's over. It's over. My wrath has been completed. It is done. Here's the end. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. I'm going to explain to you in the next few weeks why I believe that this severe earthquake takes place. But it says no earthquake like it has ever, has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. You see the seventh bowl? This loud voice saying it is done. This is the final bowl. And with that, devastation like the earth has never seen is unleashed in this seventh bowl. In fact, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, and you can't read Matthew chapter 24 and miss the obvious connection here to the things that we're seeing in Revelation. But Matthew 24, verse 21, it says, For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. This is the end with that seventh bowl. This is the end of God's wrath and judgment upon the earth. We know there will be eternal wrath and judgment for the unbeliever after this judgment comes upon the earth. But as far as the earth is concerned, just prior to Christ returning to the earth to claim what is rightfully His, to establish His kingdom for a thousand years, just prior to this, we're going to see exactly what Matthew's gospel was talking about. A time like the earth has never seen and will never, ever see again. The greatest earthquake ever. We can all agree that this is not a new instrument in the hand of God. How many times have we seen earthquakes and references to earthquakes just in our study in Revelation? Nothing new. It is part of His judgment. Did you know this? When God created the earth, every fault line that was created to cause earthquakes, He put it there for such a time as this. Here it is happening. The earth, in one moment, changed the whole topography of the earth changed. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 tells us that every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Mountains fall into sand. The islands sink into the sea. God shakes the earth one final time. When He does it, the condition of the earth is changed. The entire topography, mountains crumble. Islands disappear. And then to top that off, hailstones. Oh, this is almost sounding Sodom and Gomorrah-ish for all the people who think that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. Only this time they are not softball-sized hailstones. This time they are 100 pounds per stone falling on unrepentant sinners. Not only does this take us and our thoughts to Sodom and Gomorrah, it also takes us back to the Exodus. Exodus chapter 9, verse 22, talks about hail. and God bringing hail upon Egypt and raining that hail down upon them in judgment. So we see those seven bowl judgments and we see them again in just an automatic event after event after event until all seven of them culminate with the greatest earthquake that the world has ever seen, changing the complete topography of the earth and 100-pound hailstones falling upon everything. Let's move to something that I want us to look at that we 
passed over, but not forever. We passed over it so that we can come back and grab it now. The examination of God's wrath. Verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments. We're going to see that there's going to be an examination of God's wrath right here between the third and the fourth bowls. You are just in these judgments, you who are, are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The first examination is the examination of this angel. What does he say? The angel in charge of the waters says this. He says, you're, you're just in these judgments. Uh, no one can bring accusation against a holy God for pouring out his wrath. The angel notices. He examines the situation, and he says, you're just. Because the angel has for all eternity since the day that he was created, he has seen the wickedness of man spit in the face of God and blaspheme his creator. And he looks at all of the things that are happening, and he doesn't say, oh, I can't stand to bear the thought of it. He says, you're just. Everything that you do is right. You're just in your judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One. You're holy. Even in the things that we are seeing happening here in chapter 16 in reference to the bold judgments, the angel takes note as he examines the situation. He says, God, you're just. Not only does the angel take note of this, but also in verse 7, it says, I heard the altar respond. And we know around the altar were the saints. And here's the altar respond. And we can assume that with these saints that we are going to see respond were those who were waiting for the vengeance that God had promised them. And here it says, yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's for all the people who want to make an accusation against God. Isn't that the thing to do now in modern Christian culture? Accuse God of being some type of scoundrel because one day he is going to exercise his just and right and holy and perfect judgment. And he's going to do it in his indignation toward wickedness. And I assure you of this, he owes no one an apology. The saints in heaven here testify to that, and the angels themselves testify that he is right in what he does. It is just wrath. What does that mean? It means that it's wrath that is due. Can any of you make the claim here today that if God exercised his wrath upon you instead of his mercy and his grace, that you weren't deserving of wrath? I assure you of this, I am the most deserving of wrath. I am thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ because were it not for him, I assure you of this, one of the hundred pound hailstones would hit me right between the eyes. That would deserve every ounce of it, I assure you. He's just, meaning this wrath is due. Wicked unbelievers are getting what they are rightfully due. You say, well, how can you say that, Kurt? You're not getting what you're rightfully due. Yes, I am. Because I have been hidden in Christ and I will get the reward that Christ has promised me. I'm going to get what I have due. I'm not going to get the punishment for my iniquity. Why? Because Christ bore my iniquity and Christ bore my wrath on a cross 2,000 years ago. But the wicked who do not acknowledge Him, the wicked who deny Him, the wicked who spit in his face and blaspheme his name, they are going to get what they deserve. And had I done the same, I would have gotten what I deserve in the end. I assure you of that. And so would each of you. Because it is only grace through faith in Christ and in Christ alone that frees us from the judgment and wrath that we deserve and gives us the mercy and grace that God has sovereignly allowed us to have. His wrath is just. It's also holy. Why is it holy? Because everything that God does is holy. Can we all agree God makes no mistakes? Can we all agree that God cannot make mistakes? Can we all agree that everything that He does, since He is thrice holy, did you know when the angels see Him and they worship, they sing holy, holy, holy. He is thrice holy. That is, that is an important thing for you to consider tonight. He's not just Holy one time, he's thrice holy. His holiness cannot even be comprehended by our depraved human minds. 
And so when we think about him, him exercising his wrath and his judgment in the end, we have to recognize that it is holy in all of its aspects. Well, I just don't know how a holy God could destroy people. Because everything that he does is holy. I assure you, when God takes a life, it is right and it is just and it is holy. He is able to do that. Why? Because he is the giver and the grantor of life. and He is also the one who sustains life. And if he so sovereignly decides, he can take it from man just as he has given it. He has every right to do that. Who are you to question him? Who are you to talk back to him? As it says in Romans, oh man, we can't talk back to him. We are clay and he is the potter. It is holy wrath. It is just wrath. The angels declare it. The saints at the altar declare it. And it's proper wrath. Verse 6 says that it is deserved, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them the blood to drink as they deserve. Everyone who faces what we have seen, and God pouring out his wrath from the first seal to the seventh seal, taking us into the seventh trumpet blast, taking us into the seven bowls of his final wrath, everything that wicked man is going to face, he deserves. What should that do for us as believers? It ought to cause us to fall on our face and say, thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. I'm not going to receive what I have coming because Christ intervened, and I owe it all to him. You know what else it ought to do? It ought to cause us to get on our knees and pray for the sinners that we know. Pray for the unredeemed like we've never prayed for the unredeemed in our life. God would quicken them and awaken them so that they could be saved even this very hour. Because His wrath is proper wrath. It is going to fall upon those who deserve wrath. And we look at Scripture, we know this, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after Him. What does that tell us about mankind? We all deserve His wrath. Apart from Jesus Christ, I assure you of this, you're going to get the wrath that you deserved. Or, you can turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior that you have not. You can turn to Christ and cry out to Him, repenting of your sin and trusting in Him and Him alone. And the fact that He bore the wrath for all who will believe. You can rest in Christ, knowing that He took your wrath so that you don't have to endure 100-pound Hailstones falling from the sky and splitting your skull in two. It's proper wrath. It's deserved, but it's true and it's righteous wrath. True and righteous. In fact, Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 5. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. Who's being judged here? The stubborn, the unrepentant. Not those of us who are in Christ. We are the ones who have repented. We are the ones who have been humbled and softened by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit as He's regenerated us unto new life. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, those who are not in Christ, it says you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His, watch what kind of judgments, righteous judgment will be revealed. His judgment will be true and righteous just as the saints around that altar declared, yes, Lord, God Almighty, there in verse 7, true and just are your judgments. Revelation 19, we'll skip ahead just a little, but not a lot. Verse 1 says, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. In fact, Revelation 19, 1 and 2 is talking about the events that we are seeing unfold right here in chapter 16. I don't want you to forget that, and I don't want you to feel bad. Again, we live in a society that wants us to feel bad because we believe in a God who will bring judgment and wrath upon this earth. Don't feel bad because you believe in that God. You believe in that God. You believe in the God of Scripture. We see the examination of God's wrath. It's just wrath. It's holy wrath. It's proper wrath. It's true and righteous wrath. He can bring no accusation against him. Everything that he does is right. Then we look 
as we go back and we travel through several pieces of verses that I intentionally left out so that we can look at this. I want to see the extent of man's depravity. I want to see how depraved these who are on the earth at this time really are in light of the judgment that is falling upon them. Uh, Verse 9, let's look at that first. Verse 9, right after the fourth angel poured out his bowl on uh, on the sun and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire, they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. Watch this. But they refused to repent and glorify him. Now, now watch that for a moment, if you would. They cursed the name of God because it was obvious to them. It was obvious to them in their human minds that this is a supernatural act that is happening and it is caused by God. But they are so wrapped up in their depraved minds that even though they know that God is bringing this wrath upon them, they curse His name. They curse His name and refuse to repent. Wouldn't wouldn't it be... uh, Wouldn't it be more acceptable if we read that and it said they saw the wrath of God coming upon them and they fell to their knees and cried out for mercy and cried out for forgiveness and turned to Christ to save them? No, it doesn't say that. I want you to see the extent of man's depravity. If man is left to their sin, oh, I'm thankful Christ didn't leave me to my sin because I'm depraved. That doesn't mean I'm as bad as I could have been. I assure you of this because I could have been this bad. Because depraved is depraved, and as long as we stay in depravity, there's no telling what is going to happen or what we're going to do. There in verse 9, the heat of the sun burning people to a crisp, men recognizing it as a sovereign hand of God and then cursing God for it. Isn't it funny that it's happening in our culture right now, right? Men being taught to curse God because they're created men, and they would rather be women, women Cursing God because they're created women and would rather be men. They're obviously seeing that God created them one way and they're cursing Him because they disagree with God's sovereign plan. Here we see the same thing to a greater degree. Here in verse 9, recognizing the hand of God and His wrath, failing to repent. Verse 11, also we see this again. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast in verse 10. The kingdom of the Antichrist plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony. Verse 11 says, and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. Watch again. The extent of man's depravity. But they refused to repent of what they had done. Knowing full well, knowing enough that it's God to call him by name and curse him. And refused to repent. Verse 21. We see it again. 21, we see it again. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because that plague was so terrible. They cursed Him. They recognized the hand of God. They recognized that it was God's holy wrath, and they bring accusation against Him. They curse Him. How could God do something like this? Because they didn't know the word of God. He is a God of wrath and he is a God of justice. And and preacher after preacher time and time and time again has warned them of the judgment that is to come. I understand it doesn't happen much these days. We're too busy making goats comfortable instead of feeding sheep. But here we are. We see it happening. Preachers through, through the eons of the ages have warned people of the judgment that is to come. Prophets of old warning of the judgment that is to come. Here it is. Depraved man sees it. What do they do? They blame God. Oh, it reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Those of you who were in our Roman study and we saw in Romans chapter 1 that description for us of those reprobates, those who are depraved without hope, without God. It says this in verse 18. I'm going to read it all to you. I hope you have time. If you don't, well, I'm getting into your time now. I'm sorry. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, verse 18, against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They suppressed the truth. It wasn't that they didn't see the truth. They suppressed it. Do we see this to a greater degree here in the Revelation when we see these bowls poured out? 
They see the obvious truth. What do they do? They continue to do what reprobates do. They suppress it. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Oh, He made it plain. He's not going to be unclear when those seven bowls of judgment are poured out. Boom, 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 boom. He's making it very clear. It's me. It is the sovereign creator of all. I am unleashing my wrath. That's why John made sure that we knew in a loud voice, he said to those angels, go and pour the seven bowls of wrath on the earth. Make no mistake who it is. And they knew. Because what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. They're already without excuse even before they get to chapter 16 in Revelation. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God. Sounds just like what we saw there in Revelation a moment ago. They didn't repent. They didn't glorify Him, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Of course, he's describing for us idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26 says, Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with one another, with other men, excuse me, and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. No need to preach this again. I've preached it before. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. To become so depraved that when His bold judgments are being poured out on them and they know that it's coming from God, they still curse God and will not repent. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Have y'all seen that happening in our culture? Right? Parents teaching their children that obedience is optional. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things, watch this, deserve death. They know they deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now we know I'm just talking about the depraved mind and the depraved heart of sinful man left to his own sin. And we see it here in Revelation 16. It has even escalated to another degree. The literal wrath of God is being poured out upon mankind. They know it. They know where it's coming from and they refuse to glorify Him and bow in repentance and turn from the wicked ways and the wicked sin of their flesh. They refused to repent. They suppressed the truth. They refused to glorify God. They can continue to curse Him over and over and over again. Why? Because they hate Him. Why would they not curse the God that they hate? Proving that they deserve every ounce of God's wrath. Every ounce. Verse 32. What did it say? There in Romans. They knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. But they continue to do it anyways. Why do we look at these things when so many people want to just brush right past them in our culture? I titled this so much for the liberal God of tolerance because we have heard of Him over and over and over again. In fact, we have heard of Him so much that He has now inundated our schools are places of higher learning. Many people have adopted this false God who is a God of tolerance. He is not the biblical God that we have seen tonight, that we have seen in the Old Testament. So I would encourage you, see Him for who He is. 
See him for who he is. Warn the lost world that the God of wrath will soon pour out his wrath and judgment upon wicked, unbelieving men. And then share with them the glorious gospel. Why? Because Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Share with them the gospel. Why? It is the only hope that will allow the sinner who deserves the wrath of God to be freed from the wrath of God because Christ in his sacrifice of atonement on the cross bore the wrath of God in their stead. May we share the gospel with others that they may believe. We've seen some awful things that are going to come upon unbelievers. How can we sit back, men of God? How can we sit back and just watch it happen? Sit back knowing full well, in detail, exactly what's going to happen. And not pray for and warn all of those who are around us. I want to encourage you as we dismiss tonight, we're going to dismiss a little bit differently. I want to encourage you to take, take just a moment to think of that loved one that you know that's lost. To think of that coworker that you know is lost, who needs Christ. We have seen what's going to come upon them if they do not believe. This is just the beginning. This is His wrath upon earth. They will also endure His wrath in hell for all eternity. Let us not be guilty, men. Let us not be guilty of allowing those people, as Spurgeon said, to go unprayed for and go unwarned. I want to encourage you tonight before you leave this place. Oh, I know the, the standard is we dismiss and we all talk and we talk about our week and we talk about our day. Would we come to the altar tonight? And those friends that God puts on your heart, maybe there's one, maybe there's two, those family members, would you come and would you lift them up? Would you cry out to God for mercy on their souls? And then would you be obedient as God provides you the opportunity to share the glorious good news of the gospel with people every single day? Would you commit yourself to sharing the gospel because I promise you this. Scripture says, how can they know lest the preacher tell them? You're all commissioned to preach the gospel. How will they know lest the preacher tell them? Watch this. They won't. Warn them of the wrath that is to come. Warn them to repent, as John the Baptist did, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Would you pray for your loved ones tonight? I'm going to close this in prayer. Then I want to invite you. Pray for them. Those of you who are members here at Key Life, you know this. We keep a box up here somewhere on the front of this podium with names of loved ones, lost souls, who we pray for on a daily and sometimes a weekly and sometimes even a daily basis. We have seen time and time and time again those days. I've got one right here. I'm waiting to see him who was rescued because people were willing to pray for him and to petition God for his soul. I can't wait to see him because I'm going to say, hey, man, you surrendered to Christ. And we're going to tear this up because we don't need this anymore. You've been rescued. From the wrath that is to come. Would you take the time just to write that friend's name down in that card? Maybe you're too lazy to pray for him. I assure you there are people who are not. Let us pray for him. Let others petition God for their souls. But as I close in prayer, I'm going to ask that we not leave like we normally leave tonight. That you would if it's just one friend or five friends or if it takes you two hours, I don't care. i got nowhere to go. We petition the throne of God. Lord, before you pour out your wrath, your judgment upon this earth, would you rescue my uncle? Would you rescue my granddad? Would you rescue my friend? Would you rescue my neighbor? Would you rescue my wife? Would you rescue my children? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Because it's true. And there are so many things that are coming at us that are not true. We know, Lord, we know that your word is completely, inherently, infallibly true. God, just as we trust in a Savior who came from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, we've trusted in him as our Savior, we also trust that everything else that we read in Scripture is true. One day you will 
pour out the full fury of your wrath upon this earth. Many of our friends and many of our loved ones who are not in Christ will suffer your wrath. Lord, we plead for their souls tonight. Lord, as someone once prayed for me, Lord, we pray for them. And in our prayers, we admit we can't save them. But you can. Lord Jesus, as these men are receiving in their heart that loved one who comes to their mind, may they pray like never before for that person. May they commit themselves to prayer every day for the soul that is lost. And Lord, as only you can, may you show your faithfulness in saving the saints. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you, Jesus, most of all for your cross, where you bore the wrath that I deserved, and you died the death that belonged to me. I'm eternally grateful and indebted to you. And I give you all the glory in Jesus' name. It's open for prayer. You guys, lift up those who God puts on your heart. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.